I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 423 for Tuesday, October 1st, 2013. On today's show, an extended conversation with saxophonist Lee Konitz and a short conversation with guitarist and vocalist Camila Meza. Thank you to all you Kickstarter folks who made this new season of the Jazz Session possible. The show is going to be released each month, twice a month. That's twice as much as I said I was going to do it. On the 1st and the 15th of every month. So starting October 1st today, we've got a brand new show. There'll be another one two weeks from today. And then on the 1st and the 15th of every month, new jazz session shows. Very, very exciting. And who knows? Maybe it'll get even more frequent than that. But for right now, two a month is doable. It's twice as much as I thought I was going to be able to do. And I'm very excited. I've already got the rest of 2013 recorded. And it's lots of great stuff. So thank you to all the Kickstarter people who made this possible. If you missed the Kickstarter campaign, or even if you were part of the Kickstarter campaign, but you'd like to continue to support the show, there is still a membership program, but it is much simpler and, in fact, cheaper than it used to be. The membership program is this, five bucks a month. That's it. There's one level. It's five bucks a month. You kick in five bucks, and you get free MP3s, at least one for every show. You probably get more than that. In fact, if you kick in five bucks right now, you'll get five MP3s. So you get them for a buck each. They are already there at the member page. If you were a Kickstarter donor and you used your login to get your MP3s, that same login will still work. And there's an additional MP3 there now. If you're a brand new member, as soon as you kick that uh, $5 in using the donation button at the jazzsession.com along the left side of the page, as soon as you kick in that $5, you will immediately be given a password that will allow you to get into the members page, and there'll be five free MP3s waiting right there for you. Very, very exciting. I'd like to thank the most recent donor of a free MP3, the Respect Sextet. They actually donated the song In the Shadow of My Beer by drummer Ted Poor that has served since the beginning as the theme song to the jazz session. Most of you probably have never heard the entire song. You've just heard the little bit that starts the show and ends the show, and it's a great tune. So you can now get a free MP3 of that entire tune, solos and everything, by becoming a member for 5 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com or by logging in if you're already a Kickstarter donor to the free MP3 page that you were sent in the email. And if you lost that, just let me know and I'll send it back to you. Speaking of ways to support the show, there are a few others. One is you can rate the show in iTunes and also give it a review in iTunes. The show is back in iTunes now, but it was gone for a year, so this would really be a help to kind of kick it up the rankings and get folks finding it again. Another way to support the Jazz Session is by advertising. There are ads on the jazzsession.com now, you know, visible uh, visual ads. And also the show now offers sponsorship opportunities. The first two sponsors have already signed up for future shows. This is the way it works. It's 300 bucks to sponsor an episode. It's a thousand dollars to sponsor four episodes. So if you kick in a thousand dollars, you're going to sponsor two full months worth of shows. Uh, it's a 30 second spot right at the beginning and right at the end. 
And obviously, uh, advertising is a new thing for the jazz session. I think it's important both because the people who will be advertising are mostly people in the jazz community uh, and because I like to eat food and sleep indoors. So if you would like to advertise on the jazz session, just send me an email, jason at thejazzsession.com. Of course, if you're driving right now or, you know, piloting your ultralight or whatever it might be, and you can't write that down, just go to thejazzsession.com when you land and the contact information is right there on the page. I encourage you to leave comments under each post in the show. Uh, it's a great way to interact with me. Let me know what you thought of the show, uh, positive or negative. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing your feedback. Often the artists who are on the show see those comments too. So if you wanted to leave a little note for the artist, that's a great way to do it. Uh, please do leave your comments. And remember to click that donate button. Become a member for $5 a month on the left side of the page. As I mentioned, lots of great stuff coming up on the Jazz Session in the months and weeks ahead. The next show on October 15th will be Ralph Alessi. Uh, also coming up, Michael Weiss, piano player. Angela Davis, saxophone player, who is in fact a student of Lee Konitz. Another sa great saxophone player who you'll know from Matt Wilson's band and many other places. Jeff Lederer is coming up in December. Uh, Sharantha Bedagay is coming up. He's a saxophone player who he and I have a few odd geographical... Uh, little links to one another and lots more. So uh, please, please, please do subscribe to the show on iTunes or using your favorite RSS reader and make sure you don't miss an episode. As I mentioned, I was in Detroit this summer on my way from Alabama to Pennsylvania, and I did a bunch of interviews while I was there, including today's with saxophonist Lee Konitz. All the music we're going to hear during Lee's interview is from the album Enfant Terrible with Bill Frizzell, Gary Peacock, and Joey Barron, all of whom probably can pronounce the name of the album better than I can. And then after Lee, we'll hear that chat with Camila Meza, and I'll be back in between those two to let you know a little more about Camila. But right now, with no further ado, a track with Lee Konitz, Bill Frizzell, Gary Peacock, and Joey Barron, and then my interview with Lee. guest is the saxophonist, Lee Konitz. It's so great to have you here. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for asking. You have, uh, I, I think, found incredibly fascinating ways to use either standards, including their melodies, or at least their harmonic structures, to find new harmonic territory, new melodic territory. Does, does starting from the that kind of basis of a standard give you more freedom to I explore? I feel like I'm stepping into something I know to that extent and trying not to play anything that I've prepared, basically. And 
how in fact do you do that? Because at this point, I mean, that's one thing to say if you're 25, but at this point you've been playing this material for so long, how are you constantly surprising yourself? How do you find, how well, do you push yourself out of your uh, box? that's what is pleasantly rewarding, because uh, uh, I, I think there's uh, uh, an endless possibility for 32 bars in this case, and all of the tonalities that are uh, opened up now in, in terms of uh, playing through substitute harmonies, etc., etc. So there's a, a non-ending possibility. And if you can tap into that with another person, which I try to do, or like tonight with three other people, it's uh, just a, a very rewarding as a player and seems to reach a lot of people. Is that something that occurs each time you take the stage, or is that, that tapping in something that's a... that when it happens, it's kind of a, a, a rare or a special experience? Well, I mean, uh, I don't work that regularly, but uh, <laughs> when I do, it's uh, like a resumption of, of that thing. We don't have to prepare, rehearse, or anything like that. Sure. We don't talk about the, the, the order of tunes and things like that. It just makes it feel spontaneous. I heard a little bit of the rehearsal with the University of Michigan Big Band yesterday, and I wonder when you're listening to kids who are in their late teens or early 20s now dealing with this music that you've been dealing with for so long, what is it that you hear? Do you is there Are there things that you're listening for, are there things that you're trying to help them connect to when they play these songs that for them are often... 70 or 80 years before they were born, these yeah, tunes yeah. were written. Well, I, I just uh, suggested that uh, they become aware of the volume that uh, that is happening with the, the whole band playing together and uh, when they're playing separately to listen to what's going on, basically, and to not overplay or get uh, what I call pushy and trying to make something happen that's not uh, felt uh, genuinely. And is that something that's particularly challenging to carry out in a large ensemble setting like that? I played with the uh, big band in Cologne, which is a fine uh, band, and uh, I uh, suggested uh, that uh, I was hoping to eliminate uh, the emphasis on soloing, which is generally the case. After you hear a chorus of the written material, someone plays 17 solo choruses. And so uh, I just uh, uh, made it plain that I'm going to enter on uh, the next soloist uh, with the intention of playing a duet. And uh, some responded very quickly, and uh, it was... Uh, Really a nice experience. I think uh, the guys, I hope, uh, appreciated the different approach.
find that when you play with people you're often kind of pushing them into some territory they might not have entered on their own or thought about entering? Uh, I think that's inevitable because uh, everybody I hear has gone through the Coltrane and Wayne Shorter and all of those kind of uh, learnings and uh, I uh, have not uh, done that so I expect uh, there's going to be some initial intensity over intensity, etc., etc., that goes along with that music. So uh, I just try to uh, hope that uh, in listening and having this musical conversation, that after a few bars, uh, settle down and just react to what's going on. You can correct me if I'm framing this question incorrectly, but what what allowed you to resist that overpowering influence of Charlie Parker and then the people who followed in his footsteps, or well, or what caused you to resist? What's the last? Thing? I, I was just going to say, or what caused you to to resist or to to blaze your own trail to go your own way? Well, I didn't uh, go exactly my own way. Uh, ultimately, I was influenced by my studies with Lenny Tristano at the time. So uh, he encouraged me to study Charlie Parker, who was the, the master, but be careful uh, to not get stuck uh, with that material, as Charlie Parker did. He died at the age of 34, because I think he was uh, realizing that he had to add a lot of new concepts to his playing, and his uh, program was so set and so uh, uh, efficient, if you will, that uh, he couldn't do it. He was uh, not healthy anymore, and uh, that was a, a tragedy. Do you think the fact that he died at such a young age allows us to not have to think about what might have happened if he'd kept playing, whether he would have stayed in that same 
Well, I, of course, we think about that, and uh, I wonder, uh, after having, uh, well, you know, he was uh, very interested in Tristano, and very friendly to me when we uh, did a tour uh, uh, after I left the Stan Kenton band. Stan uh, invited me to join as a soloist, and I said, who else is going to be on it? And he said, Charlie Parker. I said, you know, uh, I haven't figured out quite why he did that. I can't believe he was just trying to uh, set me up against uh, Charlie Parker to see who was the winner or whatever. Yeah. But uh, Charlie was very friendly uh, with me. And uh, I think, uh, you know, he was interested to know how I was approaching the subject, to be able to stay that uh, uh, spontaneous, if you will. He always said that he was pleased that I didn't try to play like him. And I began to believe him after a while, you know. Because everybody else uh, was influenced to a large extent, as you might know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, was uh, Lester Young another piece of why you went in the direction that you went? He's uh, uh, my favorite uh, of all the people. Uh so I, I uh, studied his solos, too, and tried to uh, tried to relax uh, like he could, did, and uh, that was a pleasure. You know, even now, listening to saxophonists, there are so few people who are who are coming out of the lineage that you come out of, the Tristano School, you, Warren Marsh... There are just very, very few people who are kind of mining that vein, which seems to me like a really rich vein to be mining. Well, yeah, and I think a lot of guys uh, say, let's see, we went through uh, Charlie Parker and Coltrane and Wayne Shorter and what else is happening? And uh, they start to play uh, some of our lines and uh, some of that spirit of, of, uh, of not restraint, but... Uh, a consciousness of uh, all the elements instead of just coming out and roaring uh, and shaking uh, the biceps and everything. Yeah, and I, I only said that to, su to say that it seems to me there's a much wider world of possibilities to be exploring than many people are ever even introduced to, let alone then go on to explore. And what they're doing is going uh, uh, into left field and the right field with the exotic musics course that has uh, some influence on what they're doing but uh, I haven't gotten involved in those kind of things so I'm too busy just trying to swing uh, in a relaxed way and find a way of putting things together in a different way each time <laughs> Thank 
you've used that word relaxed several times. It it sounds like the a lot of what you're after is about not forcing what yeah, happens. Is very that fair? Much so. And uh, that's not easy, you know, when you're going up uh, on a bandstand with uh, not the preparation, so to speak. Uh, the first note uh, can determine all the half hour of playing. If it's a good first note, you can attach a second note to that, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that, you know, takes uh, some kind of meditation, if you will, and not uh, getting tight, you know. Are there techniques that you use either in practicing or even on the bandstand itself that help you to stay in that moment and to not to not start kind of forcing your personality on what's happening? Well, um, I first of all try to decide that I don't want to do that. That helps. Uh, uh, sometimes when I'm really uh, stuck and uh, feel myself pressing and playing familiar things just to get through it because I, I can't uh, relate to something that's happening around me, it's very necessary to be able to hear what everybody's playing and react to it. In that case, you never run out of ideas. It's uh, some kind of a uh, uh, using mechanism, but uh, as much as uh, any kind of communication is verbal communication where you're really interested in what someone says and react to it. Does that approach mean that you've always had to be particularly careful about who you surrounded yourself with? People? Absolutely. And I've been very fortunate to get uh, good guys. I still am not uh, <clears throat> in a position to carry a band around like uh, some of the guys are and to have the same people all the time. But uh, tonight I got two guys that I love to play, three guys that I, I love to play with, Matt Wilson and uh, um, uh, Ray Drummond and uh, Dan Tepfer. I'm going to Japan uh, next week with uh, a different rhythm section, different piano player, Florian Weber, a German piano player that I love to play with also, and uh, two uh, drummer and a bass player that uh, will be fun to play with, I know. So I'm looking forward to that. You still seem to me, uh, just listening to you talk and having seen you play many times, you still seem to me very excited by the music. Is that Well, uh, it's a new revelation somehow. I've always uh, uh, been part of that kind of call and response or whatever. Tristano's uh, group at that time uh, played the first totally free music, and uh, we played together enough, uh, learned uh, material that we prepared and things like that, so I knew uh, the direction that uh, I wanted to go in, and uh, I couldn't continue with, with those guys, so I was fortunate to get other guys that I enjoyed. Yeah, you just said something which I think many people may not realize, that the very the first two recorded sides of people playing completely free involved you and Tristano and yeah, the band. That was an after thought uh, of a session we were doing for Capitol Records, playing first the tunes that we had uh, rehearsed, and then Lenny suggested that we try a three-minute uh, free piece, 
and I think we did about four of those three minutes uh, to the uh, not to the joy of the some of the studio guys but Pete Rugolo was in the studio and I'm sure he was uh, encouraging so anyway that started and then uh, whatever influence that had uh, you know that uh, the musicians heard that Ornette and whoever and uh, had to give a thought to uh, what that what what the possibilities of really improvising were so uh, but then uh, we were uh, mainly interested in getting the straight ahead kind of playing developed instead of the more artistic if you will uh, uh, experimenting was that uh, we'll move on from this but was that free improvisation something that the band had done outside of the studio before or was At, that uh, Tristano's place mostly when we uh, did our rehearsals uh, we'd have a little poke uh, and uh, it said let's try this you know the little pokes were part of that thing, but look at them. They're popular now. They're <laughs> illegal, even, the little folks. That's right. You, you guys were pioneers in that sense. Yeah, in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> We're the poker players. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> but, uh, I, I uh, stopped that a long time ago with regular smoking for my uh, betterment uh, uh, by health and uh, the idea of almost depending on that great feeling, which uh, I loved uh, very much, but depending on that was a crutch that I didn't appreciate. Can you say a few words about someone who, uh, maybe it's just that I'm not reading the right things, but someone who I think is very underappreciated these days, and that's Warren Marsh? Well, I think he was one of the very great uh, players of this music. And uh, definitely underappreciated. He was a very shy uh, man in some respects, but uh, ingenious. Uh, I never uh, tired of uh, listening to him. And uh, standing next to him, of course, I, I appreciated uh, the encouragement that listening to him uh, offered. And I think in some way uh, we were able to share that. And the two of you seem to have uh, just an incredible simpatico of phrasing. For example, I think of tracks like Wow, yeah. where the two of you play these amazingly intricate and beautiful unison lines. Yeah, it was uh, very uh, much a pleasure to learn that stuff. Very difficult and challenging, of course, but uh, that's the past, and I appreciate uh, the response to that. But mostly... Uh, the idea that ladies and gentlemen are uh, studying that music now, uh, 50 years later or whatever. So, great.
do you find any, uh, as you think about your playing now and the settings that you like to play in, do you find evolutions from even 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Do you find that you're enjoying freer settings or other things that are that are changing about the ways that you enjoy playing now? Basically, uh, I enjoy when there's an apparent, obvious uh, reaction, listening uh, spirit going on. When that happens, there's no question about what to play to me. When that doesn't happen, then uh, that's where you got to be prepared or else uh, look a little foolish. Mm. So uh, I looked a little foolish, sounded a little foolish sometimes when uh, I was uncomfortable because of of, uh, people not really reacting to what I was trying to do and me not reacting enough to what they're trying to do, just that lack of being able to talk to each other musically. How much does the the reaction or the energy from an audience factor into your performance? Uh, Very much so, I think. I always feel inspired when I hear a genuine response. Uh, And uh, when people come up afterwards and sincerely uh, thank me or whoever I'm playing with, uh, that's a... That's, uh, you know, the ultimate uh, thank you. you feel that because your music isn't about grandstanding, does it require more from the audience? Does it require a little more participation? Well, I would think that, but uh, I think they appreciate uh, that, that that attitude of not trying to grandstand and show off. If you can do something uh, that's meaningful, uh, many times when I'm feeling uh, uh, tense, uh, I tend to overblow, and uh, I feel that uh, when I tone it down, they uh, uh, say thank you in some way, because, uh, you know, the, the changes in the volume are such a vital part of the intensity of the expression. All these separate elements that I'm trying to uh, realize and express to uh, people that I work with and study with me or whatever are all uh, the most valid things, I think, uh, to start off with before thinking about playing some uh, great improvisation. you got to play the melody uh, beautifully, like you invented it, etc., etc. And so uh, on that premise, uh, there's no end to it. I love that phrase, play it like you invented it. Can you say a little more about that? Well, uh, I, I've, you know, sometimes uh, because of the, what's happening with my memory, sometimes I, I forget a part of a, a tune and I'm just able to invent uh, something to connect that part to the part before, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, 
but uh, I try not to to uh, let that happen. Sometimes it, it feels uh, wrong. Sometimes I I'm playing wrong notes in relation to the basic changes. There's a way of playing different notes for based on different changes and make it sound melodically valid. But there's a time when you're faking, so to speak, and it just sounds wrong and for four bars or something. So I tried to avoid that. A lot of horn players over the years have said that they, uh, particularly with ballads, don't like to play tunes they don't know the words to. Do you have any opinion well, on that? Well, I, I, uh, I know that Lester Young is one of the great encouragers of, uh, of that. And uh, I did that uh, for a while, and then uh, I realized uh, I'm not really singing these songs. I'm not really playing the melody very much uh, to emphasize those elements. So uh, I've uh, kind of not been concentrating on that so much. And that starts to get uh, a little bit... Uh, I'm thinking of a word, schmaltzy. Mm. Uh, I've used that word lately. and uh, Singing a love song uh, through a saxophone uh, has uh, a limited uh, element of... Uh, of effect, I think. Boy, I really enjoyed Sheila Jordan in that situation last night. Did you hear that? I did. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I've known Sheila for a long time, and when she's singing with a bass player or something, uh, she tends to uh, get a little bit uh, overbearing to me with, the, with the, some of the things she does. But last night... She was reacting to that beautiful sound, and I said, yay, Sheila, good. That was beautiful. I agree. And, you know, I was going to take my horn out a couple of times because I feel very friendly with Sheila and Alan. I just wanted to go up and play on a tune that I knew, and uh, I chickened out, you know, and then afterwards... I congratulated Sheila. She said, geez, I didn't know you were here. I would have asked you to play. <laughs> that was such a nice sound. Girl. I really love your unaccompanied playing. And I think one of the things I like about it is that you're still so connected to what's happening in the song harmonically and melodically, even if you're being incredibly inventive. I wonder if you could say a few words about playing with no one behind you. Well, that's how I do uh, most of my playing. Sure. And uh, I try or need to uh, slow down the tempo very much uh, to make that uh, really meaningful for me, for me. Just getting up and going boom, you know, can become uh, kind of uh, habitual in some way, and I tried to avoid that. But playing slowly and taking a little rest and everything uh, keeps uh, somehow a balance that uh, uh, I enjoy very much and that's when I practice that's the way I practice that's what I do a few little uh, arpeggios or something to just test test the horn and the reeds and things like that I'm using a, a horn of uh, one of the saxophone players here because uh, carrying the horn on the airplane is a uh, a little bit difficult. Uh, sometimes they want to check it, 
Jesus, look at that. What the heck is that? That looks like an enormous advertisement flying yeah. by. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there's a very small plane in front of it. Oh, oh yeah, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> looks almost like a barnstorming plane from. <laughs> That's great. So I mean, uh, I can uh, say, as uh, Sheila said, she was 84 now, and uh, really making uh, lovely music. I'll be 86 in a couple of weeks, and uh, sometimes it's difficult, the long trips. Uh, I had uh, trouble going to Melbourne, Australia, and had to go in the hospital for a month from uh, like a, uh, some kind of uh, bleeding in my head. But the uh, second time I took a long trip, a little bit worried, uh, it was no problem, so. What, what keeps you doing it? What keeps you wanting to get up on stage and? Just uh, the fact that uh, I enjoy it, uh, just the fact that uh, I earn my rent money that way, <laughs> I have no other profession, and uh, the, the joy of uh, connecting with the players and with the Listeners uh, is incomparable for me in any other method and any other situation. Speaking of having no other profession, I don't know anything about uh, what your parents were like or who they were, but what, what did they think about you deciding to become a saxophonist? And Well, they uh, uh, paid uh, something like, uh, uh, I think, $150 or so for me to get my first instrument in a, a department store in Chicago. And... Uh, you know, they could ill afford that $150 or $200. Was that first instrument a clarinet, or was it a clarinet? clarinet was the first right? one because I enjoyed Benny Goodman very much. I never felt like developing that for some strange reason. As soon as I got the saxophone a year later, uh, I enjoyed that uh, more than the clarinet. But uh, they didn't really know about the music, but uh, or as my older brothers didn't know, uh, but they uh, respected that I had found something that I was interested in. I was pretty quiety and all that, so I think they uh, really appreciated that, and I thank them dearly for that. And did they get many chances to see you play once you'd become a professional musician? Oh, a couple times. Uh, they came out, and I'm sure they was wondering what the hell... I was doing with Lenny Tristano, and I could be playing some nice Jewish music. <laughs> nah, but they understood that uh, I was doing something that I liked very much. And so I was fortunate in that way. Whenever I hear, like, Dan Tepfer, uh, the, the pianist with me, is, uh, uh, his mother sang with the French... Uh, uh, she was an opera singer. Yeah. She sang with the opera for 30 years or so. His father is a, kind of a scientist, and they're lovely people that uh, really fit in with the knowledge and interest, and I think, what a lucky guy, you know. And so many people that I've heard of that uh, have a family that was encouraging. So I got it from more from the street, you know, but thankfully I 
got some nice influences. Well, my guest is Lee Konitz. It's been a, just an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I thank you for taking the time to do it. Pleasure. Thank you. music from the album Enfant Terrible with Lee Konitz, Bill Frizzell, Gary Peacock, and Joey Barron. And I want to thank Brad Lindy, saxophonist and the curator of the jazz program at the Atlas Performing Arts Center, for setting up the interview with Lee Konitz. Thanks so much, Brad. Now on to the second part of the show, Camila Meza. She was on back in 2011 on Halloween, show 320. And that was, I had just seen her at Smalls not too long before that for the first time. And since then, she's been incredibly busy. She's played all of the major clubs in New York except the Blue Note. And she'll be at the Blue Note on October 11th. So if you're listening to this close to its actual broadcast time, October 1st, 2013, on October 11th, 2013, Camila will be at the Blue Note. She just released a new EP called Prisma, which features John Ellis, who's been on the show, Aaron Goldberg on piano, Pablo Menares on bass, and Clarence Penn on drums. John Ellis, uh, saxophonist and clarinetist. Camila plays vocals. Plays vocals. She sings. We actually have a verb for playing vocals. It's called singing. Can I just say briefly, there's a thing, and I don't really understand it. There's a thing with jazz singers disliking being called singers and i'm sure there's a reason for it and i'm not saying camila is one of those but it's just a thing when you write about people who sing in the jazz world you call them vocalists and i don't understand what the difference is if there's if that's like some radio people don't like to be called djs even though i love to be called a dj um so i don't really understand what the deal is but in any case we do have a verb which is to sing so camila sings and she plays guitar or guitars as we say on the jazz session uh, we're going to start off with a tune that I have to say I have played 87 million times in all of the Latin bands I've ever been in. It's a Freddie Hubbard tune that you'll know called Little Sunflower. This is Camila Meza from her new EP, Prisma. Glowing like the sun, warming everyone, will you walk with me? More and more rich I would Like a precious little flower More and more rich I would Like a precious little Welcoming back Camila Meza to the show uh, and talking about your new record, which is Prisma. It's great to have you back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell me about this record. Yeah, I'm really excited that that it's come out. And tell me something about it. Well, um, Prisma 
It's a, it's an EP actually. It's a, a shorter version of an album. Um, it was recorded uh, in, at the end of 2011, so already two years ago. And basically, well, it was uh, my dream come true in a way of uh, just. Um, having the chance to record the material I was working on that time uh, and recorded with uh, some of my favorite musicians. Um, I, uh, by, the, by then I was collaborating with the Chilean bass player Pablo Menares. We were doing an extended work on, on arrangements of songs that Uh, have something to do with uh, my, you know, my history and things I hear, uh, music I like. And so basically, uh, we went to the studio and, well, actually, before that, we had this gig with Aaron Goldberg, a great pianist and great friend. And uh, once we had that that gig he said hey we should record this is great and so basically he co-produced it and he you know helped a lot with the production and and all of that and we went to the studio we, we recorded acoustic recording in brooklyn with michael barbary I, I'm his always, name I'm, has too many r's in it it's not your <laughs> no, fault yeah i always have a hard time saying say that last <laughs> Burberry. I, I don't even know if it's Burberry or Burby. Oh my god. Okay. And um, so it's um, it's me on vocals and guitar, John Ellis on tenor saxophone, bass clarinet and soprano, uh, Paolo Menares on bass, Aaron on piano, and Clarence Penn on drums. It's six songs. There's songs uh, in English and Spanish and Portuguese, and It's basically the best of that session. And yeah, I'm very excited with the results and, you know, a little bit how everything works in, I guess, in like an independent field that it takes longer to, to put it out than what you would want to. But I'm very happy to have this work out to be sharing it. It's available there. In, I mean, I have copies every time I play and... It's available for purchasing on the interwebs. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And um, so basically, it, yeah, I, I, see, I see albums and as a sort of like a, how do you say this word when you put like little stones on to remind you of, the, of your path? Sure. You know? I don't think there's a single word for it, but that's a good description. Okay, yeah. yeah <laughs> a marker. So, a marker. And... I I just feel so it's funny I feel released <laughs> of having that album available and now I'm on to the next thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember when my first uh, book of poetry came out, the poems in it were already several years old and I felt like I was happy that the book existed, but at that point in my life I had I was done doing those poems and I was I had moved on I thought my writing had evolved and that kind of thing I wonder as you listen to this album now that it's already two years old even though it just came out do you feel like you hear differences between this record already and what you're doing now or the person that you are now uh yeah, certainly yeah definitely um I yeah well 
you know, that's that's a, a great thing, you know, to be able to acknowledge the fact that you are constantly changing and that uh, two years ago is still it's still a valid information to be shared and that it's part of your work, it's part of your evolution as a musician. And although you're, yeah, you're definitely like on another stage of your uh, development, um, still there's beauty there because it's, it's, uh, it's my work. So yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to, to be sharing it. you uh, as we're recording this uh, little conversation in mid-September and just in the last two nights you played at the Jazz Gallery here mm. in New York will you talk about the project that you were part of oh yeah yeah really exciting project um, Fabian Amason uh, Cuban pianist that uh, plays with Terence Blanchard and you know him uh, he was commissioned to to write new music for the Jazz Gallery commission series it's a uh, a very great job they're doing and um, he was inspired to write songs this time you know he he's he has mainly been uh, working on instrumental music but uh, we've been collaborating in this great project he his doing of songs songs and uh, written in Spanish um, and yeah, I'm very. I feel very fortunate to be part of that project because I really admire his work, and and it's great to to feel that also when someone has some like when he has when some, a musician has uh, another musician in mind when he's composing, it just feels so organic, you know. And it feels that the songs were written for me, you know. Although I was telling you before, like. It totally challenges me, like, absolutely. All my skills, like, to the best. I have to practice so much his music and and really get into it in order to, you know, get the best out of it. It's so amazing. I mean, we had a great experience. It was Every night was really, like, special. And I'm very, I'm super thrilled with that project. And it turned out really beautiful. First time we played most of that music. Because we recorded an album with uh, his trio plus strings, 
where he two of the songs that we performed last weekend were featured in that album but he 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 wrote a bunch of new tunes and yeah it was the first time we performed them and it was amazing like really great experience I follow you on social media, of course, and you seem to always be traveling and having interesting shows. What are some of the things that you've done recently that you want to tell folks about? Mm, well, I'm, lately I've been working a lot and trying to write yeah, my own music, uh, trying to renew my repertoire, getting inspiration from, from, well, from basically, you know, like the scene. It's just so inspiring to be in New York and see go hear so many amazing musicians and getting inspired also by other arts too, reading poetry and like, uh, uh, it sounds like you are already looking ahead to what you might record next for your own solo projects. Yeah. Always looking forward. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Working on that repertoire. Hopefully I'll get to record beginning of next year to be out, uh, at the end of mm. next year. Yeah. That, that's, a plan I have in my head. Hopefully, you know, get the funding and all that. Now, I don't know anything about your new repertoire, but if I get a vote, and I'm not sure that I do, mm-hmm. uh, but we have a mutual friend, Talia Billig, who mm-hmm. has a online uh, session called The Orchard Sessions, and I saw you on there with her doing a more kind of singer-songwriter thing, which mm-hmm. I completely loved. So if I get to vote, <laughs> I hope there'll be at least some of that. Oh, yes. New, yeah. I mean, it was such a great experience to 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 be invited first to that session that I think it's like a great uh, initiative is that our word yeah yeah um and yeah it gave me the platform to just get inspired to write songs and I just want to keep doing it and that song in particular like it was so great to put it out and like that you know she did a great job and like our friends and it came out like so nice. I'm really happy about it. Yeah, and that song is special to me. So eventually, that will be there. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like there's a real place now. Like there are many people from the quote unquote jazz world mm-hmm. who are, you know, those boundaries between them and like the singer songwriter world are kind of falling down. And you see a lot of people who came out of jazz schools, but you know, end up doing more singer songwriter stuff. I think, which I think mm. is great. I mean, yeah. Well, I think. Um, there's a sort of, I would say, a lineage of jazz singers that write their own songs too. Sure. You know, I mean, if you think, I don't know, Abby Lincoln, she would write, or or even you know, um, Nina Simone, she was like in between too. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, you know, that's uh, exciting, and um, there's probably a moment in your life where. You just need to tell your own stories. I mean, or maybe that you cannot really find exactly what you want to say through the songs of other people. Although I, I you know, I love arranging. It's one of my, you know, my deep, um, um, how would you say? Like, I really, I feel compelled and like, I love doing versions of songs. And I think that won't, I won't leave that behind because there's, I mean, to be honest, there's like so much great music in the world, you know, like just to not make it your own. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very, it's challenging to, to, 
challenging in a good way, you know, like to try to go deeper and 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 express what you what you see from your own eyes, you know, like try to write um, your own perspective about things. And it's a process also, a process of discovery, which is very exciting too. Sure. Yeah. Been talking with Camila Meza, the new album is Prisma. Uh, I highly recommend you check it out. And it's great to talk to you again. Thank Thanks you. Thank you. That's music from Camila Mesa from her new EP Prisma. Don't forget, she's at the Blue Note in New York City on October 11th. I'm Jason Crane. This has been the Jazz Session, new and improved and expanded and back and all that stuff. Uh, Episode 423. Thank you so much to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. Don't forget, if you become a member for five bucks a month, one of the first things you'll get is a copy of the theme music to this show, but the entire tune which is called In the Shadow of My Beer, but it's actually B-I-E-R, by drummer Ted Poor. Ted's got a new album out, by the way, so go hunt that down. Ted Poor, P-O-O-R, just like it sounds. Thanks to the Respect Sextet. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who did the logo for the show. In addition to this show, I now have a new venture called Crane Rights. It's at cranerights.com, and I'm doing PR and uh, all kinds of writing, bios, press releases, Wikipedia pages for artists of all types. So if that sounds like something you have a need for, send me a line at jason at cranerights.com and visit cranerights.com for samples and rates. Thank you so much for listening. Become a member, rate the show on iTunes, leave comments under today's show at thejazzsession.com, drop me a line to say hi, and great things are ahead. I... I'm so excited. It's so great to be back and doing this. I love you all. Come back in two weeks for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.